0: Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Hello. Happy Saturday to you. Welcome back to Ellie 2.0 on lovely AM 950. Um, You know, I am your local unabashed idealist seeking to change the world for the better. How are you? We are on the downside of the summer. Oh, boy. You can't believe how much I hate to say that. And in a few weeks, we'll have our first morning frost here in Minnesota. And it's something I'm not looking forward to, but it will be a reminder that nothing is static in life. Things are always in constant motion, always changing. Well, all right. Well, we have a great show. It wasn't that profound. We have a great show for you. We'll be airing an encore interview of Michael Fosberg. He's the author of a book titled Incognito, An American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. It's an interview that uh, we did a year ago. You will love uh, Michael Fosberg. I have several new idealist interviews coming up and getting scheduled, but it is summer. And let me just tell you, with schedules, it is difficult. In my C-block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist and uh, a heartwarming encounter I had with some brand new neighbors. I'll also give you an update about my new puppy, Jack. However, let's start with our featured idealist, someone who gave his life to save the life of another. He was an idealist who was murdered close to 56 years ago um, on August 20th. 1965, and I'm sure for most of you, he's an idealist of whom you have never heard. I'm speaking of Jonathan Merrick Daniels, who was, a, at the time of his murder, a 26-year-old seminarian who was born in Keene, New Hampshire. Jonathan, Jonathan's father was a doctor and a congregationalist, and after attending local schools in Keene, Jonathan enrolled in the Virginia Military Academy, um, a, a military prep school where he graduated class valedictorian. Excuse me. It was the Virginia Military Institute. I knew that that was right. OK. He, was, he graduated uh, class valedictorian and while in school, uh, unfortunately, Jonathan's father died and that was something that shook uh, Jonathan's faith. Jonathan at that time identified as Episcopalian. Um, but he moved away from religion after his father's death. In 1961, Jonathan enrolled at Harvard University where he planned to get an English degree. However, as fate would have it, in the spring of his freshman year at Harvard, Jonathan went to an Easter service at the Church of the Advent in Boston. There was something about that service that shook Jonathan And he felt a renewed conviction to go and serve God. Two years later, in 1963, Jonathan left Harvard and began studies at the Episcopal Theological School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with the goal of being ordained an Episcopal priest. Of course, in 1963 to, you know, around that time, the Civil Rights Movement was in full swing. Dr. King had issued a call to clergy and to college students to join him on his march from Selma, Alabama, to Montgomery, Alabama. And Jonathan and another seminarian took a bus to Alabama to participate. This was in um, March of 1965. Jonathan and his colleague were so taken with the need to help in Alabama – that they obtained permission to study on their own in Alabama with the proviso that they would return to Cambridge to take their finals at the end of the 1965 spring semester. In Alabama, uh, Jonathan lived with an African-American family where he worked to integrate the local Episcopal church. Um, He was met with quite a bit of resistance. But I'll tell you, if you Google Jonathan Daniels in Wikipedia, You will see this delightful picture of this hugely smiling, beaming, white color man wearing the collar with a a little black girl on his lap and a little black boy off to his side, both of them smiling as well. And with that picture, you can just imagine the promise that Jonathan Daniels had for this world. So in May of 65, Jonathan went back to Cambridge to successfully take his spring finals. Two months later, Jonathan returned to Alabama where he tutored children, helped people apply for aid from various federal and state agencies, and where he also worked to register voters, Uh, something that coincided with the August 2nd, 1965 passage of the Voting Rights Act. Yes, that Voting Rights Act, the one that has been (laughs) uh, demolished in a variety of ways by both the Supreme Court and state legislatures. On August 14, 1965, Jonathan and 28 other protesters, including members of SNCC, that is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, traveled to Fort Deposit, Alabama, located about 20 miles south of Montgomery. The plan was to protest at the town's whites-only stores. Um, As you might have expected, everyone was arrested and the group of 29 was taken to a jail in Haneyville in a garbage truck. In Haneyville, Jonathan and his colleagues were kept in a cramped jail cell without a shower, without shower facilities or air conditioning. The sheriff first refused to let anyone be bailed out unless the entire group of 29 was bailed. Six days later, the sheriff relented and released the entire group. While Jonathan and his colleagues waited for supporters to arrive to take them back to Fort Deposit, Jonathan and three others, a white Catholic priest and two teenage black women, walked over to a nearby store to buy cold soft drinks. Standing at the front of that, store, was a white color man named Tom Tom Coleman. He was an unpaid special deputy, and he was holding a shotgun and a pistol. A discussion occurred between the group and Coleman, who refused to let them in the store. At that point, Coleman leveled his shotgun at 17-year-old Ruby Sales, and of course, Coleman aimed it at someone who was black. At that point, Jonathan intervened. He jumped in front of the gun and pushed Ruby to the ground, and in the process, he caught the full shotgun blast, which killed Jonathan instantly. As the Catholic priest grabbed uh, the second girl and started to run away, Coleman fired his shotgun again, hitting the priest in the lower back. The priest survived. Later, Thomas Coleman was indicted for manslaughter. But after Coleman claimed he saw the group with a gun, which of course was an outright lie, the all-white jury acquitted Coleman. The trial judge didn't even delay the trial so that the priest, the Catholic priest who had been shot in the back, so that he could recover from his injuries and appear at the trial and testify the trial went forward without the priest's testimony. And you can imagine it was two black girls giving their account of what happened. And you can imagine how that went down with an all-white jury. Probably all-white men, all-white colored men. Upon hearing of Jonathan's murder, Dr. King said that Jonathan's act of selflessness was, quote, one of the most heroic Christian deeds, of which I have. Heard in my entire ministry. I'm sorry, you can hear the emotion in my voice over this. Jonathan's murder shocked members of the Episcopal Church. And in nineteen ninety one the church designated Jonathan as a martyr, and august fourteenth, the day of his arrest protesting white supremacy, was commemorated and continues to be commemorated as a day of remembrance for the Episcopal Church. There was also an award-winning book about his life, about Jonathan's life, and, of course, his death. But the story doesn't end there. Ruby Sales, the teenager whom Coleman sought to shoot and whom Jonathan jumped in to protect. Ruby Sales took up Jonathan's faith uh, conquest She also attended the Episcopal Theological School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Jonathan had been a student. She then went on to found a mission to help the poor in Washington, D.C., dedicated to Jonathan Daniels. You know the saying, not all heroes wear capes. Sometimes our heroes wear the white color, the white collar, excuse me, of a young seminarian, Jonathan Myrick Daniels, an idealist who made the ultimate sacrifice. Remember that name. Okay, Um, uh, yes, and I'm sorry, I do get emotional at times. This is stuff that is so dear to my heart. It really is. Now, uh, Michael Fosberg is going to be up for an encore uh, edition of his interview that occurred about a year ago. You will love listening to him. He will, um, he will inspire you and he will make you laugh. Um, and I think it's fitting that we have a man with the story of Michael Fosberg to follow the story of Jonathan Daniels that I just gave you. So – And on the other end, I'll catch you with my C-Block. Thanks. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. So uh, check out Linda Sarsour, please, um, because you're going to be hearing far more about that idealist as we go forward in life. And now for the big interview, I have another idealist and someone you are absolutely going to love uh, listening to. I have Michael Fosberg on the line. Michael, are you he- Are you here? I am here, Ellie. Oh, well, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, Michael, let me just quickly introduce you. You are Chicago native, um, and you are the author of a really great memoir, Incognito, colon, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. The book has been out for a number of years. You're actually, I understand, working on your second book. And uh, just so the audience understands our connection, um, I was on a symposium online last week where you were one of the speakers uh, talking about diversity and inclusion. And I've got to tell you, I was enamored with you and um, thought that you would make a really great guest for my radio show. So welcome to LE 2.0 Radio.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to talk to you. I, I just want to point out that I actually did just publish that second book, which ah. is called Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. And folks can get that at the website at play.com if they're interested in um, either of those books. But that was – When you met me uh, virtually on that conference, um, I was speaking about the points, the lessons, or the tools as I I prefer to refer to them as, the tools that I've learned over 15 years of trying to get people to have conversations about race and identity. Okay, well –
0: that's great. And, and certainly, um, uh, readers, uh, check out both of those books. I'm sure that they were, re- they're really great. I haven't had the chance yet, but, so Michael, let's begin a little bit with your story, if we could. Sure. Okay. What? Sure, you, sure. You know, what is it?
1: How did, how did, <laughs> how did you I get how did, here? Yeah. How did they <laughs> <I> get here? <laughs> yeah. Give us a little bit about that, okay? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, i was uh when I was in my early thirties, um i got a I woke up to a phone call one day um, from my sister informing me that our parents were about to get a divorce. and you need to understand that my sister and I share a, a biological mother. But her father um, is actually my stepfather. You see, my mother had left my biological father when I was very young, just about two years old. And she moved from Boston back to her hometown, which is uh, Waukegan, Illinois, just uh, north of Chicago and uh, she remarried when I was about four or five, and then they had two kids, and I was raised in a, you know, a working-class white family by my Armenian mother and my adopted Swedish stepfather, oh. and then, as I mentioned, my sister called to tell me they were getting a divorce, which was a huge surprise to me, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just absolutely devastated by the news, and I realized in that phone call that I didn't know who my biological father was, my mother had never told me anything about him or my fam- his family or anything. So I started asking questions, and my mother gave me two bits of information. She told me his name, and she told me that the last time she had spoken to him, which was some 30 years prior, that she thought he lived in the Detroit area at the time. So armed with that information, this was the age before we used the Internet for everything. Before <laughs> the, the Internet li-
0: existed, right. Okay, right? <laughs> now it's like all about
1: the Internet, right? Well, I, at libraries used to have um, – phone book sections where they would house phone books from major cities around the country. So I went to the library and I looked for the Detroit phone book and I found it and I looked up his name and there were about four or five listings for John Sidney Woods and I copied them all down and I raced home and scared out of my mind, I finally picked up the phone and dialed the first number on the list and it turned out to be my father. Wow. First phone call. What luck. Okay. What luck. Exactly. And (laughs) in that phone call, uh, you know, we're trying to wrap our heads around. You're my dad. I'm your son. I mean, you know, you can only imagine it was awkward and uncomfortable. And what do we say? And how do we make up for these 30 years? And then out of the blue, my father says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I thought, okay, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else (laughs) could there be? So he said, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened. I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. And this this is my father telling me that for the first time in my memory that he loved me. And then he said, there's one Mm -hmm. other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm (laughs) African-American. And uh, again, I grew up in a working class white family thinking I was a white guy. And suddenly I was a lot more than that and then he proceeded to tell me about my my black family that uh, my great great-grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great-grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues and pitched for the St. Louis Stars. And my grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University are named after him. Oh my gosh. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and after he (laughs) proceeded to tell me all that, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still (laughs) trying to wrap my head around the black part. (laughs) And and then uh, we talked and we exchanged phone numbers and uh, and it went off from there. And I and my grandparents were still alive. I got to meet my grandparents, and um, it was just an amazing journey. And I, I, you know, as I mentioned during that symposium, I share this story in the form of a one-man play over the course of about forty-five or fifty minutes. I share that story, portraying over a dozen different characters as I tell that story, as if it's happening in the moment. And I've used that story over 15 years to, um, aside from, you know, I started in the theater and, and I had this opportunity, you know, to, to, I, we were talking about taking it to New York, maybe off Broadway. And those things didn't happen. And being a, you know, a freelance artist, writer, performer, I thought, well, you know, it's time to move on to the next, the next project. But instead, I was asked to do a presentation for a group of high school students one night. And, uh, and these were students from high schools all around the country. And I did the play and it was just out of this world. It was just, the response was incredible. And then afterwards, as usually happens when you have a group of students in the audience, that sometimes the the artists will come out and, and answer questions, you know, about how you crafted the play and, you know, how do you play all those characters and how did you decide on the blocking and the set and all of that kind of stuff. But instead that night the students asked me questions about, well, what box do you check off on applications and how do you see race and why is it so important and how do we talk about it and all these important questions about how we fit in, how we look at other people and how uh, how we look at ourselves. And I realized how powerful the piece had the, to to speak to people who are on this journey. And, you know, we're all on this journey of identity. Yep, we are. We're all trying to figure out who we are and how we fit in and where we fit in. And uh, high school students in particular, you know.
0: But not everybody gets such an astounding news about their identity. And, yes. You know, but I agree with you. We're all on that kind of journey and, and uh, you and I share some things in common. We were joking before we got on air. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I sound like a dude but look like a chick. You look white but you're really black, you know. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, Michael, we've got to take a quick break, okay? But when we come yeah. back, I want to hear more about your – you know, how your work pivoted from that experience with the high school students. And, and talk a little bit more about what you're doing right now and, and the insights you have about how our country can heal from where it's at. Okay. Love to. All right. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. All right, well listeners, we've been speaking with Michael Fosberg, who's the author of Incognito and American Odyssey, a Race and Self-Discovery, and a second book that's just out nobody wants to talk about it about race. You can visit his website at incognito.com. I may have to get him to give me a better site when we come back and um, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. How long till my soul gets it right? back on AM 950 LE 2.0 radio um before we took our break we had started the big interview with Michael Fosberg uh, the author of two books including the most recent nobody wants to talk about it um and you can find about those books at incognito theplay.com so i needed to correct that website michael let's pick back up so yes. before we took our break you go and you do you you had been doing you know one person plays Right. Um, because to fill you know your theater niche and all that kind of stuff <laughs> right, and right, you right, need right. to be imaginative then you yeah. have this experience with high school students who start who start expanding the box for you and yes. so they ask you questions not about how, how did you come up with the play but then they start asking you what does this mean today in America right. and how did that change you what and what year was that 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 happened
1: uh 2001
0: Oh! Oh! Yeah. Way okay. Yeah. Way back when. So way yeah, before. Well, I, so
1: I did the I did the play in two thousand and one, and then um, I did it at a couple of different theaters, and it led up to the summer of uh, two thousand and three. Okay. And like I said, I did it for these high this high school kids, and I thought actually that would be the last time I was do I would do the play because I couldn't find any other theaters that were interested in producing it or sponsoring it or whatever. And so when I got that kind of response from the students. Um after we had done that question and answer, I kind of came off the stage and greeted some students. And they came up to me and they said, you know, would you come to my high school and do your play? And I thought, why would I want to come to your high school and do my play? (laughs) I just couldn't put my – I couldn't wrap my head around like what would that do for me? And then it sort of – it made sense like, wait a minute. They had all these incredible questions about identity and about race. And they saw it before I saw it about how how deeply – you know, important it was to have these conversations. And then I thought, well, I could probably get paid to do that. right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's the next step, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I did,
1: (laughs) I did probably a a half a dozen schools that first year. And then the next year I doubled that number. And the next year I doubled that number. And then somebody from a college had reached out to me and then I started to tour around in this colleges performing the play. And then again, facilitating this dialogue after the play and then one night I found myself at a business college outside of Philadelphia and um I, all these business executives came up to me after the play with cor- from corporations around yep. the area and they said would you come and do this for our teams and I thought wow yeah, absolutely I bet I could get paid some more money for that <laughs> so I I then I started to become aware of the D&I space the DE&I space the diversity equity and inclusion space um which is happening not just in corporations, but also in educational institutions. And I started to just consume everything I could about that space yeah. and about that dialogue. And, and I started to be able to figure out how to shape it and to shape the, the dialogue after the play. And I started to learn all these things, um, while I was on the road. Thus, that's, the new book is actually about my travels over the past 15 years instigating these dialogues and all of the different things that I've learned, the seven tools that I can offer people to have more meaningful conversations about race and identity.
0: right and um, and and we don't time doesn't allow for you to get into all of those tools but, yes but, but yes. can we you know suffice to say that an important component of those tools is our ability to tell our stories and to hear right. and to give people the space to, to hear other people's stories and not to judge them for them. Right?
1: Right. The, mo- the most important piece of the puzzle, I think, is that, and it, it is the idea, not the idea, the, the fact that we have more in common than we have different yep. yep. and yet we allow those differences to stop us in our tracks to keep us from getting to know someone um wh- whatever it might be a difference in skin color or 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 a- a accent or dialect or whatever it might be those things keep us from getting to know someone and yet we have more in common with that person than we have different we're not allowing ourselves to go further well, and, and let me come back to that.
0: Just, uh, hold, Put a pin in that, and let me just yeah. share this with you, okay? Mm-hmm. Again, you and I have many commonalities. So when I yeah. came out as transgender in 2009, even though uh, right now that's only 11 years ago, for the transgender community, it's like 75 years ago. And so <laughs> in 2009, people didn't know a whole lot about being transgender. And so at yeah. that time, I was a full-time practicing civil trial lawyer going and trying cases. And mm-hmm. – um, but – On the side, you know, yeah, on this evening, I'll come and talk for 20 minutes. And then I started getting more requests to talk about what gender and so much so that I created a formal program around it still again on the side. And then I realized, uh, just as you realized, that there's a great hunger out there for just how to be welcoming to anybody who is different or other. And so then I went on and created a more formal program, another formal program called Gray Area Thinking. And just like you, fell into it, it, it it expanded, you know, and now just like you, my work is, you know, I do this now full time. I don't practice law anymore. I mean mm-hmm. – and I'm doing, you know, large corporations. Last week I did CVS corporate to 400 mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, it's – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by the similarities. OK. Yeah. 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 And – and to the fact that we both tumbled to this thing about telling stories. Tell me more about how you think it is um, that storytelling is so pivotal here.
1: Well, there's a – There's an academic term for it called intergroup contact theory. And intergroup contact theory was postulated by a uh, Harvard psychologist by the name of Gordon W. Allport. In 1954, he wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice. And the theory is that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us because we discover that we have a lot more in common than we have different. And uh, he did all this uh, seminal uh, research and studies on all of this information. And, and, and essentially, intergroup contact theory is just an academic term for storytelling. Right. I mean, that's what it is. I-, I wanted to share with you the dedication in my new book is to anyone and everyone who has ever felt different or mm-hmm. that they didn't belong. We have much in common.
0: What a great dedication. Yeah. What a great dedication. Um And so uh, um, have you – I mean have you ever gotten any pushback from any of your work? I mean I'm assuming you're going across the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've gotten a lot of pushback. I mean one of the tools actually is that we have to recognize that there isn't any one way to have a conversation about race and identity. I mean, if there was one way to have the conversation, we'd all be doing it. It would make it a lot easier. But there isn't one way to do it. We all come from a different place. We all come from a different experience. And sharing that, we're sharing that through our lens, the way that we see the world. And uh, that just makes it for a very messy and uh, another tool, uncomfortable conversation. So we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I've had... You know all kinds of pushback. I'm not on social media anymore, as a matter of fact, because of the the trolling and the well and the disagreeableness on most social media. I'm not. I, I I'm off Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. The only social media I guess I I'm on is LinkedIn, um, which is a business platform. But right. um, yeah, I just couldn't I, I couldn't be a part of that anymore.
0: Okay, wow. Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. Um, mm. So you know what I'm finding in my work is is fear. It's Yes, you know I have a saying that ninety eight percent of all people are good have good empathetic hearts, two percent are total sociopaths, but the other ninety eight percent are good and um, but but most, many of the ninety eight percent are afraid they 're scared to death and they 're afraid yes. of exercising their empathetic hearts for fear of it 's going to cost them time or money or grief or all that type of stuff and so then we just stay in our respective camps. I think the right. thing that I found fascinating about your you know, your play and your work is that you we don't have to do anything except sit in an audience and you invite yeah. us in. Okay? You yeah. invite us in through humor because you you know, you have a really great sense of humor and you're a really great actor. You are very good. Mm-hmm. And Thank um you. And, and and so Michael, I think that what that does is that just breaks the ice for just about anybody. Um, whether yeah. you're red or blue or Bernie or whatever you are. And, right, uh, right, and And have you gotten those comments from, say, the red people who are like, I didn't expect this. This is different than what I had anticipated and I'm more interested now.
1: Well, I would definitely say that – you know, for the most part, um, audiences I, that I'm speaking in front of, are, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir ah, for the okay. most part. That is not to suggest that there aren't some in the audience. And I have experienced this and gotten emails from people and some pushback in audiences. But I try to like one of the things that I sometimes hear is people will talk about they'll dismiss diversity, equity, inclusion as a, a as a political issue. Right. And I'm like, yep. it's not a political issue. It's a human issue. This is about human beings, not about politics. It doesn't matter if you're red or blue. Yep. This is about the way that we treat people, the way that we accept people or don't accept people. And the fear comes from a, a you know this misunderstanding of not of, of of not feeling comfortable in an uncomfortable place. And so it brings up a lot of fear and therefore you act out on that by pushing someone away. And that's why I say one of the important tools is we've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable.
0: Right? Right, absolutely. So with the time that we have left, Michael, tell us, because I ask everyone on the show, yes. what What do you think made you an idealist? Because it's not a given, <laughs> even after that thing with the students, it's right. not a given that you would continue onward in this pa- down this
1: pathway. Right. Well, I have to say, as an artist, I was always attracted to things, to plays, to movies, where you would walk in the theater and you would laugh yourself off i mean it would just be hilarious and then you would walk out of the theater thinking to me that is the the most mm-hmm. satisfying artistic experience and that can be true of reading a book or yep. seeing a painting or you know again a play or a movie and for me i was i always gravitated towards that that thing of, of enjoying, but also walking out deeply thinking about what is this trying to say to me? And I think when this journey happened for me and I started to see how powerful it was and how in my telling of it, it had this incredible power, I realized that I, I was in that slot. I was in that space that I so much enjoyed and longed for and that is using theater as a a, a, for social change yep and um i think it just the more i discovered how powerful it was the more i gravitated towards it and i and it led me you know, to some degree like you, you, you're not practicing law anymore. I'm not really in the theater or entertainment community anymore. I'm in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. And I just happen to deliver a message using the arts. Well, but it's a great
0: message. And it is um, innovative. It's an innovative way of getting people to think differently. Right. And, um, And I, you know, I don't know if you've got plans to ever retire, but I would Dude, dude, I would tell you to just keep doing this, okay? I mean, well, really. you know, I have to say,
1: I have to say the pandemic in some ways, it's crazy. It's sort of helped me. For years, I'd been thinking about trying to, how can I get this thing virtually? How can I take my play and create a virtual platform? And of course, the pandemic forced me to do that. And so now we have virtual programs utilizing the play as the leaping off point, as the jumping off point. And so. I can do things online and not have to, you know, fly around the country and risk my health and all of that. And it's been a, you know, in a way it's been a gift that uh, I can still do this and make a powerful impact. Well,
0: and I've had the same experience. So, um, Michael, if people go to your website, um, incognitotheplay.com, can they see a snippet of the play just to yes. get a flavor
1: of it? Yes, yes, absolutely. There's there's videos of the play. There's um, there's interviews with me. There's a talk back with a corporate audience. There's an interview with me and Don Lemon on CNN. There's all kinds of um, video clips and stuff on there. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, you've done you've had great success. Uh, a little bit more than Ellie Krug, I might note. And so yeah. I'm happy for you on that. Um, and again, if people want to read about you and or are your books available on Amazon and Kindle and that stuff, or only through your website?
1: They're, they're available on Amazon. We're uh, like, what do you call it? An independent seller on Amazon. But it's best if you want to get a copy to go to the website, because we'll, I'll sign the book then. Okay. <laughs> if you go to the website, I'll autograph it. All right. So. One
0: last time on the website.
1: Incognitotheplay.com. Both books are there. Um, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations, and Incognito, An American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery.
0: Michael Fosberg, I cannot tell you how much of a pleasure it has been for me to speak with you. Holy, same here. And I just, I have enjoyed this so much. Now, I'm going to cut off, but hold on, okay? I'll catch you after yeah. after I let you go, all right? And Absolutely. so, um, audience members, we've been speaking with Michael Fosberg, um, an artist, an idealist, somebody who is dynamic. Take my word for it because I've seen him in action. Go check him out. And if you are looking for something unusual for your organization... He's the one. Well, so am I. But he's the one. He's going to make you laugh a little bit more than Ellie Krug will. Okay? When we come back from our break, um, I'm going to give you my C-block where I talk about my work. And visit my website at elliekrug.com if you want to know more about me. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. She was And we're back on AM 950, Le 2.0 Radio. Yours truly, Ellie Krug here. I hope you enjoyed Michael Fosberg's encore interview. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, we're in my C block. I'm going to talk. It's a hodgepodge. I've got a number of things to talk to you about. Um, first off, I have done about 90 talks or trainings this year so far. Uh, most of them have been online. And at almost every one of those talks or trainings, I um, – Made what I call my standing offer, and if you've been a regular listener of the show, you know what that standing offer is: is that I'm willing to talk to any human who maybe uh, has a relative or a friend or somebody dear to them who is transgender to talk about how to be supportive of that person, um, or you know, to talk to any human just simply about trying to survive, uh, you know, the human condition. And uh, somebody took me up on that a couple of nights ago, a couple, excuse me, a couple of days ago. Um, uh, she actually had not been to my training. Uh, well, she ended up hearing the, uh, the training via via video, but her mother had heard it. At any rate, um, uh, this person uh, wanted to be supportive of a transgender person in their life, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to get any more detailed about that. But I was so touched that this person would be brave and reach out to me and ask me, you know, Ellie, here's the story. What suggestions do you have about how I can be supportive? And again, long-time listeners, you're going to know what I'm going to say, okay? And that is, I said to this person, um, I said, tell them that you care. Tell them that you love them. And then I said, put it in writing. Long-time listeners, you know. I'm not a big fan of texting or email when you want to let somebody know that you are their ally, that you care about them, that they're important to you. I am a huge huge believer in pen to paper, either in a you know on a letterhead or in a note card where you write those words down and then you stick the thing into the mail with a stamp so that the person, the recipient, actually opens something and has that piece of paper or note card sitting at the edge of their nightstand, or Breakfast Nook, where they can go back and read it over and over and over. Not the kind of thing you can do with text or emails. So anyway, that was part of my personal mission, trying to make the world better. Second story. Um, so I <clears throat> I happen to be the uh, homeowner association representative for my neighborhood. It's only about 30 houses. Um And I hosted a national get out, you know, national night out event at my house. Well, on my driveway on uh, Tuesday night, we brought somebody from the management company to come in and talk about the HOA. Um, And then we had, gosh, we must have had about 25 people at, at the event. I mean, I thought it was a really great turnout. And uh, and was a great way to – I mean very first time for me. I've been living in the neighborhood for about seven months. First time for me to meet many of these people and the same goes for other folks and so it was all quite wonderful. But a man and a woman came up to me who I you know met for the first time like right then and there who came up to me and both of them told me that they had read my book um, within the last week. And the man um, – was quite emotional about it, about how the book had touched him. I mean, we're talking an older gentleman in his, you know, sixties at least, mid sixties. Um, and and both of them were so, just so warm towards me. And I've just got to tell you, I mean it. It just, it just made me feel valued and good. Not like, you know, egotistical, okay, but just it was so kind of them that they would read the book and then that they would share it to me that they had done that and how the book had touched them. So, again, it was just really great. By the way, uh, okay, Ellie, do a little bit of marketing. Will you at least the book – Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change is available on Amazon, Kindle, or Nook, or at Majors and Quinn in Uptown in Minneapolis. Third thing, Jack, the golden retriever, (laughs) also known as Jack Attack, because he believes that I am his own personal human chew toy. Trust me. And I am looking right now at multiple Multiple wounds, you know, um, scabs on both arms and hands. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, he is now about 20 pounds. He is uh, quite adorable. <laughs> he looks, he absolutely looks like a little polar bear because he's all white except for a little black nose and, you know, a little black around his eyes a little bit. Uh, but boy, this guy is. You know, he has upended my life in many, many ways. I am a creature of habit and he is challenging all of my habits because he needs attention. So I'll keep updating you about Jack. About, yeah, Jack attack. Lastly, August 20th. So if you're so inclined, put this on your calendar. I'll be doing a live show. I've got a live interview lined up for that. And um, we're going to do a live show on that Saturday. It's the only day I can get the interviewee. And, hey, it's Saturday. Why not do a live show? So get that on your calendar. All right. Well, there you go. That's it. Another show. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. And for all of you out there, okay, I hope that you find this show of value. I hope that you appreciate little bit, at least what I have to offer every week. And I ask you between now and when we talk next, go out, do good, make the world a better place. Take care. See you next week. Bye-bye.